Oh, and welcome back for the final time in season one to the Remedial Magic Podcast. My name is Brady. With me, as always, are my brother Baylor and our good friend Delbert. And this is the finale of season one of the Remedial Magic Podcast. And I'm excited and sad. Yeah. I'm very excited for the next book. Excited that we're done with the first book, because I didn't know if we'd get here. It's a lot of episodes. But uh, I'm also excited to just sit here and talk for the next two hours. It's a pretty big milestone, you know, getting to this point. There's there's a chance that you record two episodes and then say, eh. <laughs> so I'm glad that didn't happen with this one. Uh, I, I, I'm not that sad. I'm not going to lie to you guys, especially after our interview with Sam Gabriel, which will be coming up in this episode, even though we've talked about it for six previous episodes or whatever but um probably not that many but uh i'm not all too sad because number one i'm really glad that next season we're retiring the one chapter at a time and number two um everybody seems to say that the books only get better uh exponentially even has been mentioned so um, i'm very excited going forward and i'm glad that we have one under our belt we're an established podcast and just looking forward to what's to come. I should clarify, when I say sad, what I mean is the fact that we're going to be taking a recording break. And this is one of my favorite weekly activities, so I don't know what I'm going to do with myself on Sunday evenings from now on. But uh, we'll get back into the studio soon. I should say we have some fun stuff planned for this episode. As Baylor said, we've got an interview with Sam Gabriel that was, frankly, altogether way too short. Uh, we've got... Uh, we've got our three-sentence summaries, which is going to be a little bit different this time because we're each going to give our own three-sentence summary that covers the entire book. We're going to be talking about our favorite parts and least favorite parts of the book. And our main discussion is going to be about who we think as collectively were the top seven characters in this story and why. And for that, we're going to choose which actor... Of the three we listed, we think fits the role best. And then we've got just a couple other small things to discuss before we wrap up for the season. So it's uh, it's jam-packed. This will be a long episode, for sure. This will go much over our hard and fast limit of 45 minutes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the hard and fast hard limit. Hard and fast that... limit that we've met <laughs> once, maybe? Yeah, met once, yeah. Have we met it ever? We met it um, in the epi- in the final, like last week's episode. We were nice. under forty five for that one. I'm I pretty know it sure was we short. Were. It was either forty five or fifty. So nice. I know I promised under forty, and we definitely didn't do no, that. No, so. we didn't. This one, I'm gonna just say we're just gonna talk until we're done. Yeah, and it'll be the, the longest episode we release probably for sure. I think all of us are smart enough that from now on we should just talk until we're done to begin with. Yeah. So you know what, fans, screw y'all. Our episodes are going to be the longest ever. We're just going to read the book and then react to it for season two. Yeah, we're going to we're going to live read the book, <laughs> and we're going to do all of that in under an hour, oh, or okay. try our hardest to do that. Anyways, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But uh, we definitely like. There's a lot of times that we just it's just fun talking about it. You know, we we are enjoying what we're doing. So I wouldn't expect the episodes to be short ever. We'll just. We're, we're shooting for under an hour, continuing on, but uh, we'll just see where they go. This one, however, will be longer, and I thought it would be appropriate to start this episode off with a chance for redemption 
Delbert. Would you please, for the last time this season, tell the people what our social media is? Yes. So, first off, we have a link tree with all of this stuff. If you need to find the link tree, it's probably in the uh, description of this episode. Also, you can just Google Linktree the Remedial Magic Podcast and we will pop up. If you'd like to get to the specific addresses, our Gmail is remedialmagicpodcast at gmail.com and our Twitter and Instagram are at the underscore RM podcast. Incredible. Our Reddit is the remedial magic pod where I post in various subreddits. Nice. There you go. Nice. The first the first take, you got it. Definitely the first take. (laughs) No editing required. We didn't have to edit that at all. Uh, Yeah, so reach out to us there. We will be checking in our break, just periodically looking uh, at the emails and things like that uh, so that we can address them when we can. But speaking of our break, this is how it's going to work. We're going to be taking – there will be no release next week. Next Sunday, there will be nothing that comes out. The following episode, we're going to be doing a special episode – where we each write our own short fan fiction and then read them on the podcast and just talk about how embarrassed we are. I'd like to let everyone know that we had not confirmed that until you just said it, so there we go. Well, the boss speaks. When you let me make decisions, these are the things that happen. Then the following week, we're going to watch and then review a fan film on YouTube called The Sisters of House Black, uh, recommended by Delbert. You've seen it. Right? Seen it twice now. Yeah, and I don't think Baylor or I have watched it yet, so that that should be pretty fun. Uh, Then we're going to take one more week off where we have no release, and then we'll be back with our first episode about the second Alexander Quick book, Alexander Quick and the Lands Below. So that's what the schedule officially looks like moving forward, meaning after today, our next discussion on AQ will be in about a month. If you want to write my fan fiction for me for that episode and save me the work, please send it to our email. Send in your own if you want. We can talk (laughs) about them. But, you know, we're going to try our hand at writing our own. And (laughs) even though I made the decision to do that. They're going to be short. I feel ridiculous about it. Yeah, Yeah. one or two pages at the most. So it should be fun. Uh, But that's kind of how things look moving forward. There will be a season two. We're committed to the second book for sure. So absolutely, it's exciting times for our podcast. Yeah, I can't wait for the paychecks to roll in. True. Still, yeah. still Billion the dollar one. podcast, yeah. as I announced yeah. in the interview, I'm pretty sure. We've oh. gotten big enough at this point that we receive spam emails from fake advertisers all the time now. Indeed, yeah. So thanks for signing us up, one of you 50 viewers, listeners. And if you're a fake advertiser and you're not actually fake... Let us know. We'll apologize just like we did for the Instagram user. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> uh, a couple quick stats about our podcast this season. I thought this would be fun to go over. Uh, all time, not including this episode, of course, we have 1,890 listens. That's not bad. That doesn't include a couple episodes, right? That's Maybe true. It doesn't either. include a couple since we're a, a little bit ahead at this point. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah, for full transparency, we're about three episodes ahead, I think. So, right yeah. For full time-wise variant or uh, understanding, we watched Fantastic Beasts last night. Yes, we'll probably, just came out last night. Yep. Yep. By the time this comes out, we'll probably be upwards of 2,100 listens. So yeah. 2,000 listens over the, over the course of our 
first season here, we've got really about 50 dedicated listeners, it seems. And then as time goes on, each of our episodes seems to tick up into that 70 to 80 listens range, which is pretty nice. And also, we seem to be gaining listeners somewhat consistently because even our earliest episodes are continually climbing five or ten listens per week, which is pretty nice. What's our first episode at for listens? Uh, our first episode is close to 200. It's also the biggest drop-off of completions, right? Because we decided to use just the best part of the audiobook <laughs> to start our episode off. Our first episode is 182 listens. Nice. So, and that's our highest that's our highest, but yeah. we've got some others that are creeping up towards that number. So I smell mortal flesh. I smell yes, blood. Yes, wonderful. <laughs> so with that being said, there's not much going on. As Delbert said, we just watched Fantastic Beasts, the new one, last night. And if you are interested in our what our thoughts were on that, we do have an episode where we just kind of discuss our first reaction to some of the stuff in the movie. So you can go check that out, but... There's not much happening, I think, in the wizarding world right now, um, and we have a lot to talk about, so I think we should probably just jump right in and get after it. Agreed. Yep. As I said, this first thing we're doing is a three-sentence summary. Officially, I think the last three-sentence summaries, including one we asked Sam Gabriel to do, of the podcast, because we'll be moving away from this format, and we're each doing a three-sentence summary for... The full book. So, Baylor, Delbert, which one of you would like to start? Not it. Not it either. So, Brady, take it away. All right, <laughs> nice. Then. My three-sentence summary for the entire book is, Alexandra Quick is a troublesome little girl with magical powers. She causes numerous problems throughout her first year in the wizarding world. Almost none of her problems get solved, but she does learn who her father is. Okay. Yep. That's, I like it. Yep, that's pretty reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. You want me to go next, Baylor? I, I can go ahead and go next. Okay. All right, so mine goes, you're a wizard, Alex. Look out, Alex. Someone is trying to kill you. Ah, you escaped that one, Alex, but now you're knee-deep in the world of political intrigue, and everyone is going to use you to benefit themselves. Wow, nice. Wow. Very good. Long third sentence compared to the first two. But really liked it. Yeah, Indeed, good. My English like teacher that it was, would be proud. Yeah. Compound sentence. Yeah, there you go. like that you were directly addressing Alex as well. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. it's almost a discussion to her. Yeah. Rather. Yeah. And I will say the parallels between the original series and this book were about that long. It was about one sentence worth of parallels. Yeah. So well, I've that's got- why I threw that in there. I uh, I wrote mine down ahead of time knowing we were going to do this and have since lost it, so uh, I'm going to try my best to remember it. Okay. <laughs> Alex Quick is an 11-year-old American witch. She travels to an American wizarding school to find out or find some new friends and some new foes. Unfortunately, it seems like everyone over the age of 12 is a foe. All right. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Because we really don't know who the hell the foe is. Yeah. I I think all three of those pretty much describe the book uh, as well as they can. And it's actually nice doing the three-sentence summary, I found, when you have time to think about it that's beforehand. True. That's Indeed. true. Indeed. I mean, on episode one, we did not know it was coming. And when you hit us with it, we were a little scared. Yeah. So, <laughs> I will say, if, if I'm allowed to. That the reason we did those first is because Sam Gabriel's in his interview is by far the winner. It's so good. Yeah. It's very yeah. good. Stay yeah. tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> we'll be getting to that uh, shortly. But first, we kind of wanted to just talk about what our favorite and least favorite parts of the book were. And 
I was looking over at least mine and Delbert's and we sort of approached this the same way and not having a specific moment. Um, but Baylor, let's go ahead and start with your favorite part of the book. Go ahead and just tell us what it is and tell us why. Right. Yeah. I, looking back, I most enjoyed the fight scene over Christmas break. Uh, I say fight scene with with quotations, obviously, because there wasn't an actual fight, but uh, there obviously was a conflict that caused Alex's house to be burned down. Um, I enjoyed the scene because it completely came out of left field and was very well written by Inverarty. Um, and then it's also the first thing that caused me to doubt that Lilith and someone at the school was trying to kill Alex. When we were doing those long-term predictions, I was hard set on, on Lilith, and then that's kind of when I first realized, oh, there's the rest of the world that could potentially be trying to kill her. Um, also, just a shout out a little bit to the Discord. This was kind of where we see um, Archie turn into a good guy, I think. My favorite part was villani- villainizing Archie. No, I'm kidding. My favorite part <laughs> of recording the podcast was villainizing Archie. <laughs> uh, Delbert, what was your favorite part of this book? Uh, my favorite part is all about the cultural stuff. I mean, the Ozarkers are so well written. It's even interesting to hear with uh, Anna with her Chinese-American background and also having a muggle mother and a uh, wizard's father. Kind of hearing how that all interacts in this. And I know we just released an episode on Fantastic Beasts, but I kept this separate intentionally. The depth of the cultural writing from Inverarity's uh, s- skill and perspective and everything is so much better than what we see in Fantastic Beasts. My biggest thing is, like, the Ozarkers, you hear their heritage, you see that, like, you're going to see even more of this going on, Baylor, but you get to, like, see how they live and how it's different from everything. Whereas it seems like with, like, Fantastic Beasts and even some of the original series, I mean, for example, spoiler for Crimes of Grindelwald here, or uh, Secrets of Dumbledore, sorry, they go to Bhutan, and essentially it's a hundred white people in Bhutan. It, it's not representative of the culture. They just use it as a backdrop. Inverarity does not do that. They make everything feel alive. So that's my favorite part is just seeing all these different uh, back backgrounds backstories and cultures yeah yeah i get on board with that i i really enjoyed how amber wrote wrote a lot of that stuff you could tell he put in a lot of research the wizarding world is much more fleshed out in the alex quick series than it is in the harry potter series right the wizarding world is bigger than than britain and in 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 Verardi's writing, we see that, which is really cool yeah it's my favorite by far of not only book one but the whole series yeah my uh, my favorite part of this book, uh, kind of contrary to the way we've talked about it, is anytime Alex is in Dean Grimm's office. And the reason that I say that is not because I like watching Alex be unfairly punished, but because of the conversations it, st- it spurred between us for podcasting. That Those scenes, more than anything else, I think drove us um, to come to conclusions about who Dean Grimm was and like what her purpose was in the story more than anything else. And on top of that, nothing else in the book made me feel the way that those scenes made me feel right. Those scenes made me feel like viscerally anger or angry at Dean Grimm as a character. And so because of that, um, I really enjoyed reading those. I can get behind it to be honest. I mean, Dean Grimm's character is awesome. So it is nice to see her in a, element of what she would be in. 
not to jump to the next part, our least favorite part of the book, but I'm going to go ahead and say it because that was actually my least favorite part of the book. Well, there Interesting. you go. <laughs> and yeah. and okay. it's not because it was not written well or anything. It's just because of that visceral anger feeling. I think that's a great way to put it. It just, every time she went in the office, I just was pissed off at Dean Graham. So, yeah, that that was my least it's, favorite part of the book. well written enough that the mention of her going to Dean Grimm's office like puts you in that that state of mind where you're like this is going to be horrible I freaking hate yeah. Dean Grimm before it's even happened you know yeah you're always wondering what will happen cuz there it's not just going to be a, a straight ahead visit you know yeah my least favorite thing also ties in with like how you both just said Dean Grimm and Alex in her office because my least favorite thing is Alex i mean i know having read the series i know she gets better and everything but even on our first read through me and brady would text back and forth about man she is just insufferable sometimes and things like that i already don't like having to interact with kids on a long-term basis because i get headaches from it pretty quickly alex would be the kid that gives me the headache the fastest and the most frequent so i mean she's bratty she does get a little better throughout the book, but she's just a really annoying preteen. I agree. Yeah, I, she, I agree. Alex is an interesting main character, again, and we've talked about this, because she's a main character not written to make you like them. Yeah, once again, mm-hmm. well written by Inverarty. Well yeah. done. We lo- I think we can all say we love the book, we love the writing, but her character leaves a lot to be desired. For sure, in uh, book one. Without question. I, I compare her a lot to, and this might be a hot take, so feel free to roast me, but um, kind of Harry's character in the fifth and sixth, and even some of the seventh book. I just hate how stubborn and annoyingly angry Harry is the entire time. Like, I don't know. It just, it it's very annoying, and I, I get the same feeling with Alex yeah. as yeah. well. I just don't like characters who put themselves on an island purposely, and Alex is doing that almost all the time. Uh, my least favorite part of this book was anytime Alex was in an actual wizarding class. And the reason I'm saying that is because a big part of the, the cool factor of being in a wizarding school is actively knowing what they're learning in class and having the class be an important part of the storyline. And the wizarding classes in Alex's case, aside from her just complaining all the time, didn't seem to serve much of a function. The only thing we saw as the reader throughout the whole book, basically, as far as learning goes, was trying to move that statue very early on, right? That and Alex having a potion explode in her yeah, face. Yeah, that was even more of a test rather than learning. The The classes, I'm not going to say they were a side thought because I don't think that's how Inverarity writes, but right. they came across as being like, oh, I'd better mention a class since she's at a wizarding school. Right. I, so, com- I completely agree. I mean, we even talked about just having a movie about the the basic wizarding stuff just because it'd be exciting to learn about that part of of this world and so yeah i would agree that that definitely was missing i, I didn't notice it until you just brought it up but yeah i would agree any time that. that she was in a wizarding class i found myself wishing that she was instead like snooping around in the basement trying to find <laughs> answers or whatever else because that's really what the story was about so right we spent far more time in detention than we did in yeah. class as the readers another, so. another thing too that would be cool is the differences between the uk school what they learn and the and an american school in fact i think the thing we learn the most or that alex le- the thing we see alex learn most uh visibly i guess to the reader 
is I think the librarian teaches her some magic when she's in detention. Yeah. And I think that's the closest we really get to seeing her in an actual learning environment. Yeah, I mean, one of the functions, the function of one of the classes that we read about the most isn't even to learn about stuff. It's for one of the teachers to complain about the state of the wizarding <laughs> world, right? So, yeah. For me, I could have done without the classes, but, you know, uh, there's always hope for the next book. Yeah. Ooh, promising. <laughs> now, we talked with this kind of we talked with Sam Gabriel about this kind of stuff, things he likes from these books, why he likes them so much, and so I think now's an appropriate time to slot that interview in to the podcast because going forward after this, we're going to be talking about things we didn't talk about with Sam Gabriel. So I I think it's a good time for us to uh, stick that interview in right here, Baylor. And so without further ado, I would. Love to introduce Sam Gabriel to the podcast. All right, so we're here with Sam Gabriel, the narrator of the Alexander Quick audiobook. Sam, welcome uh, into our recording space. <laughs> it's absolutely great to be here. Um, I, I want to say first and foremost that I... Really appreciate you guys doing this this podcast. I think that AQ is uh, a series that deserves far more attention than it's gotten, and this is exactly the kind of thing that's going to get that rolling. I think a little bit. Yeah, we think so too. You know, we we appreciate the help that you've given to us. Uh, you've been instrumental in sort of collecting some of our thoughts about the podcast and getting us to. I think this episode's going to be the twenty eighth episode that we've recorded. So it's uh, it's been really fun and. We agree with you. I think Delbert and I especially, and hopefully Baylor by now, we all sort of think that this fan fiction should be looked at um, as a like a real important supplement to the information we get from the main series. It's it, it's it's interesting because I was I had gotten a recording set up set up and I was like, okay, I need to do some sort of an audiobook because I want to do audiobooks. I need to do, do one as practice. And I found this series and I was like, okay, why is there no audiobook of this already? Because there, there are plenty of fan made audiobooks of plenty of fan fictions out there. Methods of Rationality has one, you know, and I mean, I'm talking like really long ones. There are really, really long pod fix of fan fictions. And if, if AQ was anywhere near as popular as it deserves to be, there would already have been one. So. You know, I, I'm I'm glad I was able to sort of fill that that gap. Yeah, well, it's that important thing I think to have. It makes it a lot more accessible to people in general. I think we've talked about that kind of behind the scenes about how if you don't want to read a book or a series as long as AQ is, having an audiobook available really helps uh, people still get into the series. And so I think the podcast is kind of just a supplement to the fact that there's already a physical copy of the book available and something you can listen to when you're driving in your car or walking around town or anything like that. Well, yeah, because I, I don't have time to read. Uh, whenever I read, it's for work. I But I can listen to audiobooks while I do other things, you know. Yeah, sure. So that was actually one of our questions. I guess you kind of addressed it, but we wanted to ask uh, how you got into recording for audiobooks. And you've at least... so. I've, Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, um, I've always wanted to make audiobooks, and I made Alexander Quick. Um, I didn't make Alex. I made the audiobooks for Alexander Quick, and I, 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 I contacted him Variety on his on his on his live journal, 
hi Verity, you have a live journal. Um, and uh, you know, I sort of, I asked him for a lot of feedback, um, or or at least like thoughts about how characters should sound, how things should be pronounced. Uh, I can say with authority, for instance, that it is um, Mrs. Minder and Mrs. Grinder. Um, the first time I recorded Thorn Circle, I pronounced them as Minder and Grinder, and later asked him, he's like, no, it's Minder and Grinder, so I went back and re-recorded all of the, the, the instances of that. Um, but once I had finished the series, um, or when I was getting close to finishing it, um, like a year and a half ago, um, I got in touch with a guy named The Sinister Man, who is the author of uh, the fanfiction Harry Potter and the Prince of Slytherin, which is another fanfiction that I really like. And I saw from his author's notes that he had um, uh, two things. He had uh, an original novel called Strangers in Boston, and he also was a fan of Alexander Quick. So I just found him on Discord, and I just DM'd him and said, Hey, I made the audiobooks for Alexander Quick. Hire me to do your original novel. And he said yes. So... I, I started doing that, and that's going to come out very soon. Um, there, there's been some hang-ups in the, in the production, but it's like it's almost done. The audio is almost finished for it. And I recorded that live in his on, on his Discord channel, like in a call. Uh, we would just we would ping everybody, you know, like every week, and I would do a couple of chapters. And everyone would always ask me, are you going to record Princess Slytherin? Are you, you going to record the fan fiction as well? And I'm like, well, I already did a fan fiction that's like 110 hours long. Uh, I, I can't do that again for free, you know? And eventually, because Prentice Slytherin is longer than Alexandra Quick. Um, and eventually I just said, whatever, I really want to do it. It would be fun. Um, I'm going to start a Patreon and see if people want to like donate to the Patreon, but I'll just start recording it for fun and to practice British accents. And so I started doing that in his server as well. And and I did it like every day for like over over a month or something. Uh, just his practice, and while I was doing that, an author named Matt Bradley, Matt Darkness Enthroned Bradley, got got in touch with me, and he said, "Hey, I want to hire you to read my fan fiction, Academy and Victory Remastered." And I was like, uh, "Okay," because it had never occurred to me to charge money for fan fiction readings. Um, but I'm not. I also wasn't going to turn down money, and he is from England. And he thought my British accents were good enough. So I started doing that for him. And then I picked up another client in his server. And I picked up another client, another client, another client. I have about 10 clients right now that I'm just making podfix of their fan fictions. Most of them are Harry Potter. There's one Star Wars fic and there's one um, My Hero Academia slash Spider-Man fic. And I record them for a commission based on how many words it is and release all of them for free and it's it's been going really well and i was able to quit my um job at the radio station that i've, I've been working at for the last eight years like last month um because it's i'm making more money doing audiobooks now and so i wouldn't like i'm not in the audiobook industry not really but all i do is make audiobooks so in in, in a way um, the yeah, AQ is what gave me the chops to do that. I, I, I improved dramatically over the course of doing that. One thing that I don't know whether you guys know, I probably mentioned it at some point to one of you privately was that what you guys listened to of Thorn Circle is the second time I did it. Uh, I recorded, thir I recorded, um, Thorn Circle and edited it in full 
And then after I finished the fourth book, I realized how far I'd come. And I, I was listening to Summer Thorns. I was like, this is terrible. I can do so much better than this. And then COVID happened. And I worked at Starbucks at the time. And Starbucks sent everybody home for a month and a half with pay. So I was like, okay, I have some time. I'm just going to redo Thorn Circle. So I just redid all of it. So when you guys move on to Lands Below, you'll notice that the quality of the audiobook, like the narrations gets really weird for a few chapters before I figured out what I was doing wrong. Uh, and that's because it was done way, way before the current Thorn Circle audiobook was. Um, and you guys can feel, can feel free to cut me off whenever, because I will just keep talking. I'll be honest, it's been interesting. Um, I mean, I didn't know that you had worked radio before. It makes sense having a voice and everything. Also, congratulations to being able to quit your job and do what you like to do. I think that's all our goal eventually, too, to maybe turn this into a multi-billion dollar podcast at some <laughs> <Yeah>. point. <laughs> yeah. Look, if the McElroy brothers can do it, so can you. But like it, it, I'm what I am. I'm incredibly lucky because I've just I've found people like people have gravitated towards me that have been incredibly generous with their both with their time or just their attention, but also their their money. Some of the um, m most of the time, um, the client is the author of whatever fic it is. But sometimes it's been someone else commissioning it on their behalf, and sometimes it's been um, a crowdfunding effort. Shout out to the guide server and shout out to the uh, Muffinverse server um, because like those have actual co-fees that people just put money into a pot that someone else manages and then they give me money when I produce stuff. Uh, and so everyone just sort of chips in because uh, it's like I don't charge nearly what an industry standard rate for this is because I'm not making a product anyone can sell, you know, so... I just I it's it's enough that to make it to make it so that I can support myself, you know, but it, it isn't it, it isn't any 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 more than that really. And so Right. It's just a, it's a really strong community around this and I found a niche and it's it's worked and it's great. Oh yeah, I mean it's really cool that it's uh you know, fanfics that you're that you're getting paid to to make make in the audiobooks. That's really cool. Um so I mean you're talk you've talked about all these other uh you started with EQ and then kind of went off to these other audiobooks, but how did you first discover the the Alex Quick series? I, I I made a search for best Harry Potter fan fiction of all time, and one of the first results was someone on Reddit named Haruko FLCL, um, who said like they just talked they they talked up AQ and they and they they went into all of it and I was like okay I'll I'll, I'll give this a shot, and I I started reading it and I wasn't super convinced at first. Um, what convinced me was the Ozarkers, because there's there's there, there's one moment when they're on the bus, and either concerts or forbearance says, "We've even wished a few hexes," and I'm like, "That's amazing! Wished that's an amazing line." And then one of the rashes uh, says, "What did you just contrive?" And I was like, "Oh, this is awesome! I'm sticking with this." And like all all of the writing is just so lifelike and. Every like when someone has a dialect, they talk in the dialect, and it's it's really interesting. It was really fun to do. My God, it was so fun to to voice the Ozarkers. Yeah, that's uh, I think what convinced Delbert and I initially as well was the Ozarkers yeah. and how unique they're their so characters were and how they were written and really some of the stuff they're saying is so different from I guess what we're hearing around where we live that it it makes you go, okay, I want to hear more about what they have to say. One of the really interesting things about the rashes is that. 
when you're first reading it, like, obviously, whenever you're reading AQ for the first time, you're looking for the parallels. You're saying, okay, who's the Dumbledore of this story? Who's the Ron, you know? And the Rash is the first thing you think of, okay, the Slytherins are hillbillies in this. They're, 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 they're rednecks. <laughs> they're, they're, they're the Ozarkers. That's the first thing you think. And then you realize, no, it's just another culture that's full of people, and they have some weird views, or some of them do, and, but they're all fully, fully fleshed out people. And everyone is a distinct character. And that and right there, oh, sorry, God, I'm going to trample so you here just for a second. No, do it, do it. That is exactly what got me into it, is the difference in cultures. And I know that we're only on book one here, so we don't want to spoil a ton for Baylor. But when mm-hmm. we got into books three, four, <laughs> and five, Brady and I would text back and forth about how cool all the various cultures that you get to visit end up being. Like There's- They're so unique and they're so well-written. And that is really what sold the story as a whole for me. Well, I can only imagine, especially how well, you know, Inverarty's written, you know, these cultures into the book. Like, he's he's uh, brought in so many of the correct things related to these cultures. It's, I'm really excited to see in the future books like you guys are talking about. Well, I can say that he got most of the Ozarkers, not all of it, but, like, the sort of fundamental core of Ozarker culture comes from a series of fantasy novels called the Ozark Trilogy or the Ozarker Trilogy where a lot of the concepts and especially stuff you'll see in later books are um they, they were sort of invented by this this author and obviously some of them are based on like tradition from the actual Ozarks but some of it was just invented and he he pulled from that substantially there um like things like the Grand Jubilee which will be something that'll mean something to people that have read the whole series and not to people that haven't. But like that, like the third book in, in the Ozarker trilogy is called the grand, the grand Jubilee. So there, there's definitely some usage of, of stuff like that there, but he got, he, he pulls from it. Well though. Yeah, no, I think we all agree with that. Uh, I think I'm going to move on to the next question since our time do is going to be it. limited. Uh, yep, yep. You gave us a little bit of a synopsis there in both the Ozarkers being great characters, and then you even gave us a little voice snippet of the Rash Twins. But who was your favorite book one character to voice, and did that change when you went back and re-recorded? Okay. Um, I'm not going to say Abraham Thorne, because he doesn't get to do much in book one voice-wise. Um, but... I mean, like I, I really enjoy doing that particular voice. The, the, I'm not gonna even do it right now. But the, the, the um, um, who is it? Okay, no. In book one, the character I had, I had the most fun voicing. Uh, there, there are two answers. One is the vampire. I don't remember his name, but I actually didn't revoice him. The only bit of audio in the re, the read on Thorn Circle that is the original audio was the vampire in the archives. Because it was just, oh, you know, like the, it was the, all the, this crazy, stupid Vincent Price pastiche I was doing, and I had a whole lot of fun doing that. But Dean Grimm was my favorite character to voice because whenever Alex goes to Dean Grimm's office, those are the boss fights in the book. That, that, that's that's when everything comes to a head, and you see how far she's come. And they're very tense. They're very she's they're very sinister. They're very dangerous and you know, dangerous on the level of an 11-year-old. But still, um, that was very fun to do. Having that sort of, like, icy edge to the way that Lilith talked 
Lilith is, is one of my favorite characters in the whole series. Yeah, um, I mean, she's great through book one, and of course she gets expanded on later on, but it is interesting to hear that you kept the vampire of all people, because, I mean, both in writing and in the audiobook, dumb. that is such a uh, uncomfortable scene. I... <laughs> It's just funny, because you don't know what's going on, and you realize, okay, it wasn't quite as bad as it looked at first, but it's just, you know, it, I, I think the the idea of a vampire who's basically in Alcoholics Anonymous for being a vampire is very funny, and it's like, you know, she wasn't supposed to be down there, you know, like, it's, 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 I, God, okay, here's, okay, I have a, I have a bone to pick with you guys. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm not. Ready. A, I, I, I'm not. I'm not 100 caught up on 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 the pockets. I'm, I'm a few episodes behind, so I don't know if you guys have, have reevaluated this. But in a recent one I listened to, you guys all agreed that Alex draws about even with Book One Harry in terms of how how much of a character they are, how much they added to the story. Is that is that something that you guys still think? Um, it's a good question. I don't know if we've actively reevaluated that, uh, or not. I, I guess thinking on it now, I would say that Alex drives the story a lot more than Harry does. Yeah. I okay. Agree. Okay. <laughs> I can. I, I. I. don't need to go into the whole. The whole thing then, because our time is, is is limited. But I. 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 I made some lists. Uh, that I was gonna bring in if we had more time. But yeah, because I just think that that's that's. Book one is a story about a little girl, you know, and and um, Sorcerer's Stone or Philosopher's Stone is a story about a magical world. Um, and it's, you know, like every single thing about Alex and every, everything that she does has conflict baked into it, has things that that make the story happen because of her. It isn't a story happening around her. She is the story. She's making her own problems and dealing with her own problems and figuring out what her limits are and growing as a person. Uh, and, and it's it's very she's very 11 years old. And that's it is astonishing how good Inverarity is at writing children. Yeah. And I will say, actually, as we started podcasting more and more, we kind of cleaned up the episodes but especially in like the first through fifth chapter where there was all the world building with the goblin market and with all these new magical things that were going on. I know that we were really uh, taking our time p- nitpicking every single thing to try to find out what is this, how could this relate and all that. But really, you're right. Once you get to the school, the world building's almost over at that point, And it really is a story about Alex. Yeah, and I know one of our later episodes, uh, I don't know if you've gotten to it yet, Sam, but... Uh, we did, men- or at least I know I mentioned that Harry Potter, they had to build in a completely new world. But here in, in the mm. AQ-verse, you know, they had those building blocks already in place. So really we were just establishing, yeah. oh, this is America, and then and then the story took off. Whereas in Harry Potter, in my opinion, it took four books for the, for the story really to begin. Well, you and know, that, that that's a that's an, an interesting thing, too, because, like, okay, like, I think that if you're, if you're going gonna, gonna to look at fan fiction – Inverarity did an, an incredible amount of heavy lifting in terms of making his own magical world within the existing one. But he was absolutely building on established bones. You know, he, he was building on Rowling's world and, and making it feel like it was part of that. But, like, one thing that you'll see is that 
and Baylor going forward, like, have you guys told him that book one is the weakest one by far? Because all of the other books are way better. All the it's other interesting books, well, you bring that up. Yeah. We, we haven't really brought that up to him specifically, but uh, we have talked about how going forward, things grow almost exponentially uh, rather than staying linear, which is uh, it's a really fun thing for us to read, and especially it's going to be fun for Baylor to read because <laughs> things do get sort of out of hand. The more you read, the more crazy things get. I will also say it is interesting that you say that when the next question to be asked was where does this rank within your uh, where does this rank? It isn't bad. I'm other not saying AQ it's books. bad. It's just all the other ones are so much better because it's like I it is all I, I would rank them almost sequentially in terms of quality. That they're and and I I can't obviously I can't get more into specifics without you know talking about something we we don't want to talk about, but I. One of the things about book one is that Inverarity didn't super know how fan fiction worked when he wrote it. He wrote the entire book and posted all of it on fanfiction.net at the same time. Um, and with all of the other books coming forward, one major difference was that he had beta readers, which he, he didn't have for the first book. Um, and so you'll see a significant jump in quality going from book one to book two. And book one is still better than 99% of fan fiction out there. Um, but, like, okay, so one of the things in Harry Potter is that it's about book books four and five. The, the world kind of explodes outward. You see, a, you see a much bigger picture of the way the world looks, all the different facets of it. And in Alexander Quick, you get that in book two. You you get it again in books four and five, but like book two really has a it has way more world building in it than one does, and you already feel like okay one this was written by someone that knows stuff about America and actually knows how diverse America is and knows how to use all the different cultures in America and come up with new ones and you know not just say oh they just have the one school and here's Native American pastiche stuff that I looked up on Wikipedia and that's the world building. I, I can't say enough bad things about the uh, Fantastic Beasts world building. And Alexander Quick predates it by a number of years and entirely disregards it. So I, I think that's just for the best all around. I I would say that Delbert and I for sure would agree with everything you've said there, especially uh, the way the world blows up almost as soon as book two begins is for me at least the most satisfying part of the series in that it you learn about tons of new things that could exist in the wizarding world it also i think inverarity does a good job of going back to answer questions that we were left with when harry mm -hmm. potter got over and yeah. explain things that otherwise we don't have an explanation for still even the author of the main series hasn't hasn't given an explanation for some of this stuff and so uh uh inverarity making use of the words that he writes in this series to do that for me is the most satisfying part. Yeah. And also from my perspective, I actually kind of agree with you that the books get better as they go along, but for personal reasons on my first reread lands below will always top the chart for me. I think, I mean, lands below is probably the most fun book it was the great the twists were good i mean everything mm -hmm. about that book was good not to give any spoilers to baylor but yeah. specifically the twist towards the end of the book i did not see coming and it ripped me apart <laughs> yeah 
man it's it's a good it's it's oh man it's like it's it's twice as good as the first book it really is and that's say that's really saying something when again alexander quick and and the thorn circle is it's so much better than almost every other fan fiction i mean like i'm not saying all their fan fiction is bad i've read some amazing fan fiction uh, like i'm i'm lucky enough that a lot of those the the fix i'm i'm basically all the fix i'm reading for for, for clients are outstanding I'm reading Lily and the Art of Being Sisyphus, which is like an existentialist masterpiece written in the form of a Harry Potter fan fiction. There's a Cadmian Victory, which is this like heartbreaking, dark, dark tale of 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 a man's descent into madness. Like it's it's it, there's so much good stuff to be had there. Oh, and there's like stuff like Seventh Horcrux, which is absolutely hysterical. Um, and it, it's the reason people don't read AQ is because it doesn't have Harry Potter characters in it. And that's what people are there to see. And I, I understand that, you know, you're going to like, Oh, I want to see what happens to Harry. I want to, I want to read, Oh, what if Harry and Hermione got together? You know, that's, that's my ship or whatever, but you guys are missing out. If you're not reading Alexandra quick, as far as I'm concerned, it's Canon. Yeah. I think a big part of that about, people not wanting to read it because it doesn't have distinct Harry Potter characters and direct references is that they're missing the fact that this is the type of content we need. If we're going to turn Harry Potter into a universe similar to star Wars, right? We need other people playing around in, in that space that uh, JK Rowling created. And Alexander quick does an amazing job of that. It gives us an entirely new country and set of rules to follow in the same universe. And that's what makes the universe so much more interesting. That's why Star Wars is so generationally generationally impactful now is because so many people have gotten to play in that space. And so I think it, we do good by allowing somebody like Inverarity to jump in and create their own stories within this place. I own 120 Star Wars novels. Star Wars was, was my first nerd love. It's just there's so many different flavors that you can find. It, it's kind of sad that it will never happen. They like... Alexander Quick will never be official canon. Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers will never acknowledge it. That's never going to happen. And the one time Rowling let someone else play in her universe, it was Cursed Child. So maybe it's for the best that that doesn't keep happening. Who knows? Um, <laughs> but it it would it would be so much richer if if there were more voices in there and more points of view. That's a big one. And more <laughs> more things happening and more characters. And like I mean, it's you can take any like you can take any number of very minor characters in Alexandra Quick and they will be so much deeper and more more richly realized and more realistic than main roster characters of Harry Potter. Yeah. That I goes I, without saying. I really think yeah. what it, the whole wizarding world needs is just slap Kevin Feige on it. You bring him in, I, and I think you could just create <laughs> anything you want, and it would be gold. Sure you don't want J.J. Abrams? To you know, maybe for maybe for one of the movies. Maybe. maybe for one of them, yeah. Oh, man. I... I, I it was... It, mm, I... I'm just, I'm just thinking, uh, so, so hard of like, you know, people will say, "Oh, Ron's such a deep character because Ron has issues," and it's like everyone in AQ has issues, man. Like every single person has stuff going on in their head that 
is way more interesting than what Ron Ron Weasley has going on. And I'm not saying I don't like Ron. And also, like, the goals are different. You know, we, we can talk about which one is better or worse, and I think Alexander Quick is better, but also, I was, like, 31 years old when I began reading it, and I do think it is written, it's tuned more for adults than children. I don't think, I don't think, like, anyone under the age of, like, maybe 13 or so could get anything out of Alexandra Quick. They get something out of it, but, like, it's not really for that level of reader. You're watching kids go around and do stuff, but you're doing it through, like, an adult's eye. And you'll really see that in books going forward. Like, you'll see, okay, this is how kids interact with each other. That's really interesting, and I can make sense of that because I'm I'm an adult, because it's written by by an adult. And that, I think that's, that's who it's for. Yeah, and I think to expand on off of what you just said, and kind of agree with you, to be honest... You're right about the depth of the characters, but also the depth of the problems between the characters. In Harry Potter, Mm -hmm. everyone's Scottish or English, and they all basically, like, it's all about blood status and wealth. That's all it is. Here, you've got the Ozarkers. You're going to see a lot of stuff in Mm. book two with the Asians. No, that was the the, thing. That was the thing. One of the things, the thing I say to people when I want to sell them on Alexandra Quick is the scene where... Muggle-born black kid David Washington finds out about house elves, and he turns to pure-blood black witch Angelique, and is like, "You seeing this? What's 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 the what's the matter with this?" And she doesn't understand the problem. No, it's great. That's but- so fascinating. That's so interesting. Mm, yeah, like, but when like, you it- drag all these cultures in, all these mindsets, all these things that are just ignored in various parts, like you're saying with. The uh, pure-blood wizards not even thinking about slavery based off of skin color or otherwise, it really leads to a lot of interesting problems that you don't really have in that original series. Well, and then how, like, Darla says, oh, we don't have race race problems in, 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 in the wizarding world. And then, like, in, like, two chapters later, you see that voodoo is classified as a dark art. And the only possible reason for that would be because they don't understand it because it, it's, it, it has the origin that it... That, that, that it does you know th- there's all that stuff woven in there and Inverarty doesn't point it out to you he he presents situations and doesn't give you an answer to them we are we we are still without in book five we are without a coherent answer to the question of whether whether house elves are okay whether that's a thing a thing that that should be happening the book doesn't tell you Alex still doesn't know She's trying to figure it out though, and that that makes that so much more interesting than just laying the morals out there for you. It just he just gives you situations, and you just watch them. If if a character is not there who would say that something is wrong, no one says it's wrong, and it just it just passes without comment. You know, you have to pay attention and pick that stuff up yourself, and that's really interesting. It does. It leads some uh, some solid agency to the reader to figure that out, and it does, in fact, make it more compelling and. Unfortunately, we're running out of time here uh, in our recording space, but before you go, I wanted to uh, toss a wild card at you, and if you would, I would like it if you would summarize the entire first book of Alexander Quick and the Thorn Circle in three sentences. Okay, all right. Alexander Quick is an 11-year-old girl with issues. She goes to a magic school and takes those issues with her. Unfortunately, her father had issues as well. 
<laughs> that is really good. It's really good. <laughs> Love that. That was that was good, wasn't it? Wow, yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> Re- retitled Alexander Quick and the Issues. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, we we've joked on the Discord server that Alexander Alexander Quick three should be should be retitled Alexander Quick and the Need for Therapy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, it's it's man. Mm. Well, Sam, uh, I think we want to get you in for a longer interview during season two of the podcast, if possible. Absolutely. I'm 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 available. Um, I'm I'm always gonna make gonna make time for you guys. I w- I'd love to come on here as much as you would like to have me, and just be aware, it's gonna eat up time. <laughs> you know, every, yeah, for sure. I know that I know that about myself. But yeah, I was. I was I was I was very happy when I realized before we started that it wasn't you guys weren't going over the chapter in this episode. I, I thought you guys were going over the chapter. I'm like, you're not going to have time if we only have like 35 minutes, you know. But yeah, no, this was this is a lot of fun, and thank you guys so much for doing this. And please don't take too much of a break from Alexander Quick. That needs to be your focus because no one knows about the fic, and people need to know about the fic. Yeah, we. Uh, I think we're all itching to get into book two. We I are. know we want to take mm-hmm. a brief break and cover some other small things, but it shouldn't mm-hmm. be too long. It's like at the most, our break's going to be what three, maybe four weeks maximum. It, yeah, like two episodes and then two one week breaks. I think yeah. is what we talked about. So, and if you want to, if you, if you want to do some small fix in that time, like I have very very short, very very short ones that I've done as well. You know, if you guys just want to cherry pick stuff that I've done, so you could still use clips from them or whatever. I know that's 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 only a very small part of production, but like, you're welcome to to use any of my audio whenever you want. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, we will. Uh, I think we'll maybe get at you in the Discord when we're looking for recommendations for that. But uh, mm-hmm. otherwise, we yeah. really appreciate you uh, coming on today and. We'll set up something Thank you where so we much can for spend yeah. Yeah, a couple hours. Yeah, big thank you to coming, and also I cannot wait until Baylor's finally caught up, and we can have a mm. two-hour session where we talk about everything. That'll oh be a yeah, real it's one. gonna be big. It's gonna be. I I I'll I'll. This will be the last sort of thing I say. I guess I have never seen a fan fiction that inspires deeper conversation than Alexandra Quick, especially as the series goes on. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, with that being said, we're going to uh, let you go, but we'll get you back in during season two for a longer interview. And again, we really appreciate yeah. you coming on. And I'm sure the Discord will probably be more interested in this episode than any of the other ones so far. <laughs> well, just because I mean, you're you such saw a what happened when there. you asked them for questions to ask me. You know, it was like, you know, like, how many fingers can I put up my bum? You know, it was just that kind <laughs> yeah. of thing. Yeah. But thank you guys so much for having me. It was This was a lot of fun, and I'll definitely be listening next time. Sounds great. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Sam. Once again, I want to say thank you to Sam Gabriel for giving us his time for that interview. It was – we didn't want to stop. We were unfortunately (laughs) restricted by the amount of time we had in the studio that day, but – We've already made plans to hopefully get Sam back on the show for a dedicated episode where we just talk to him for a good length of time because I don't know about you guys, but I felt like he knew more about AQ than than I could think of, in, even though I've reread it several times. Yeah, and I mean, his answers were, <laughs> is it too much to say elegant? I guess not, since we're uh, talking nicely about someone, but... On top of that, I mean, we mentioned it earlier with Baylor, but his three-sentence summary was just incredible. So yeah. 
hats off to Sam Gabriel. Definitely happy to talk to him again, hopefully sooner than later. I would I would like to talk to him not only about more AQ stuff, but his life. Like, what an exciting job to yeah. do audiobooks for fan fictions and get paid for it. That's awesome. I had a conversation with a friend about that, and is he the only person on the planet that makes a living from making audiobooks for fan fiction? I don't know. I, he there's If he's not, there's not very it's many people very doing It's very niche, yeah. but, I mean, sometimes you can make good money doing niche things, yeah. so good on him. Well, and who would have known that there was enough money for him to quit his job? That's, that's awesome. That's true. Like, yeah. when he said that, I was like, really? Okay, yeah. sweet. So this book... It's. This is a debate I've been having with myself since the first time I read this book. Is this book better than the first Harry Potter book? Oh. What a question. <laughs> so, it's tough to say, right? Like, I. Th- it depends heavily on the definition of better. Do I have the same reaction reading this as I did when I was eight reading... Sorcerer's Stone, Philosopher's Stone? No. I mean, that would blow this one out of the water. But if I had to read both of the books with no knowledge of what comes next right now, I think I would have enjoyed this one more just because of the audience that it's meant for. I would agree with you. Yeah, like when I go back and reread the original series, the the thing that I dread the most is the first book and especially the first like four chapters when they're talking about all the background. It just, because I know it all, not, I don't know it all, but just because like, I've heard it all before, it just kind of gets boring for me. So I think where I'm at right now, this book is definitely, in my opinion, better, especially just because we get to the meat of the book so much faster. And this was a book about Alex, whereas, like we said, talk with Sam, the first Harry Potter book is not a book about Harry. It's about the Wizarding World. Right. You know, so um, I would say right now, yes, I think it's better and more exciting to read, but also... There's just nothing compares to the introduction to a new world, especially when you're, uh, I think I was 11 when I first read the, the Harry, first Harry Potter book. So I think from both sides, they both ha- serve their purpose, you know. It's just, it's a hard question. I understand it. It's almost like comparing apples and oranges, right? A little bit. Because there's not really a true answer. Because uh, this, Inverarity and this book does some things so much better than they're done in the original series. Like, fleshing out the different cultures of the wizarding world, focusing in on specific relationships. Uh, Some of the central conflict is much more compelling in this book than it is in the original ones, but the original ones have that it factor where there were the, the first Harry Potter book when it came out was essentially one of a kind in terms of the concept. And it has spawned so many related things or so many similar ways of telling that story that it's hard to it's hard to say that anything's better than it when you consider the cultural impact that Harry Potter has had. Well, we see this issue everywhere, right? Like not just in Harry Potter, right? You see this in sports with people debating whether or not Michael Jordan is better than LeBron James or vice versa. If you look into the world of fantasy, are we going to say that Tolkien is the best medieval fantasy elf writer of all time or does that now go to uh George R R Martin? Like, there's a lot of difference in the scope of things with time, what age we were when we first interacted with it and all this. And, I mean, in the words of Lil Dicky, why can't fruit be compared? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I think that for Alex Quick, the characters are way better. 
way better. I agree. Significantly and, uh, better. I, I agree, yeah. I, I think for the plot of book one, Alex Quick is better. Yeah. I think it's fair. I, I just I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer. The yeah. only thing I think that would be better in the case of the original series is the world building and mostly because it came from scratch because mm-hmm. this world was also awesome. I love the introduction of the goblin market and, you know, there's like the Walmart superstore of magical stuff, but it didn't come from nothing. It was based off of the original work. Right. It kind I, of, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I also like the flow of the first book of Harry Potter better. Yeah. Um, but I, I also think, we don't know, I guess, but I kind of think this was Inverarity's first work. So it makes sense. You yeah. Know, he was he was still learning when he And wrote this. according to Sam Gabriel, who seems to know a lot about everything, this book wasn't edited when it was first released. It was released entirely on its own, which makes sense because there wouldn't have been a following to have editors for you. So, I mean, the fact that it's as good as it is, when I'm sure for the first Harry Potter book there was... A, army of editors looking over every single detail it's really a testament to how good this story is in my mind absolutely yeah it kind of pains me to say but i think if you presented me in a year with here's what you you can choose to read sorcerer's stone or thorn circle right now i would pick the thorn circle probably i agree i think i would pick it up and it kind of pains me to say because i am a Harry Potter fanboy and I have been forever. Right. But this book is just aside from how it flows. Cause there are some points in this book that are just very slow. There was. And I think most of that was the fact we were reading it one chapter at a time. I think it would have been better if we could have read four or five at a time. This book is just better. I think it's good. The the character reveal I think was more surprising I mean, I know that we have the scapegoat of Snape and the scapegoat of Grimm throughout both these books of who's the real bad guy. But I feel like moving to Quirrell, what did we ever see of Quirrell? We didn't care who Quirrell was, whereas with Ben Journey, he was a prominent figure throughout most of the book for our main character. The only thing we see from Quirrell is an introduction to him in the Leaky Cauldron, and we see an image of him when... uh, McGonagall pulls Oliver Wood out of class to go teach Harry how to play Quidditch. Well, Quirrell is very, very much set up to be the surprising villain. Yeah, like, but it to just be didn't like the guy matter. you don't expect. You yeah. know, but you're right in saying that Voldemort could have been on the back of the head of any Twalarney person or Flitwick or anyone at that point, and the, it wouldn't have changed. And it, anything. it wouldn't have changed anything. Whereas yeah. we got to know Ben Journey so well throughout this book that when it turns out he's the guy behind the murder plot. It kind of makes you go, well, why? It would have why been like have if McGonagall would have been the person with Voldemort. I on agree. Her head. Yeah, he was. Journey's a much more impactful villain than Quirrell was. Agreed. So, uh, I that don't know. Being said between both books, a lot of parallels. Lots lot of, of parallels. You know, it's a young wizarding student with a small group of friends and. They don't really trust someone in the school, and it turns out it was someone else in the school the whole time. Both villains monologue right before they fail their <laughs> action. But for the most part, I would give the benefit to uh, Alex Quick over Harry Potter. I'm with I you. Agree. I'm there. I uh, agree. We kind of wanted to address just the book as a whole a little bit. 
not necessarily diving in super deep because we've done that for 27 episodes True. at this point, but just kind of talking about the book in general. And um, Delbert, you specifically wanted to do that. So if you wanted to kind of take us through this a little bit, we'll yeah. just follow along with you. So basically, I just wanted to like surmise the plot. Um, you know, we basically we have Alex who essentially the moment she's found out to be the daughter of Thorn by school officials, including Journey, is having her life threatened. She has it threatened by the Kappas, by the uh, Red Caps, by the Invisible Bridge. And then as she enters the school, obviously, she has multiple attempts on her life by the uh, character Ben Journey throughout. And my thought is, do you think that this was... I know we talked about it a little bit when we found out who the actual person being Ben Journey was. Do you think it made sense? Like, do you think it made sense that he could sneak off before the school started, go out and try to fill up... Where did he get a Kappa? Where did he get Red Caps to go put in that pond? Could he have realistically caused the invisible bridge to fail with everyone else around. Like, what do you think of the realisticness of the plot itself? I think overall the plot is well done. There's no reason he wouldn't have been able to do that, especially when he found out that Alex is coming to the school, right? He has access to all of that information and he's probably, if Dean Grimm didn't suspect him of being in the thorn circle at the beginning of the year, he's probably part of the staff meeting where she mentions hey by the way this is the situation you know and so the fact that that he sneaks off and puts the kappa in the pond near alex's house or is able to tinker with the invisible bridge or really any of that stuff that he set up the fact that that happens it's not really out of left field you know it makes sense and it's it's baked into the plot for it to make sense because who has more access to a school than the custodian right Almost nobody. I would say the plot is really good, especially when the reveal finally happened. Then all of the puzzle pieces fell into place. Like, oh, it makes sense that he did the Invisible Bridge. It makes sense why we never saw the killer. It makes sense why it seems like she was always, uh, her life was always attempted on when she was doing something with Ben Journey, you know, which all throughout the book, I never suspected him until that last chapter when he uh, took Anna to the forest. So, um, because of that, I would say the plot's really good. And, and that plot twist at the end, once again, you know, really sealed the deal for me on, on this being an excellent book. Yeah. I mean, that was my biggest concern is just whether or not you could find large plot holes or anything like that. Because I know, not necessarily in Sorcerer's Stone, but in the original series, there's a lot of plot holes that you can, you know, look into and be like, well... How does this actually work? So I just wanted to get your guys' take on it and see if you had caught anything that wasn't explained or something that was like causing you to struggle to understand how something occurred and if we could hash that out. But it seems like overall, not really anything huge to discuss on that end. It might be worth a conversation in the future when we're looking back on this book, but for the most part, things are laid out pretty logically, I think. You know... It, I think it helps that this book is clearly structured on the same skeleton that the first Harry Potter book is structured on. Yeah. You know, you find out you're magical, you go buy your school supplies, you go to a school where you make one or two tight friends, and they help you get through the year's issues, 
Yeah. And so I think that really helps. But on top of that, there's coverage for the things that happen. You know, when something happens, you can look back and find small stepping stones that led to that action where in the original series, that's not always the case. The only thing that I would have liked more during the dialogue at the end was if Journey explained all of the attempts. Like because, if he went through every single one with her. Well, yeah. just like when they were in the attic and got locked in, I yeah. don't totally understand how he was trying to kill them then unless he expected the cat to kill them. And then also the one with the potion. Right. Like, I don't know what he did to the potion, you know, to make it blow up. Right. Like, like did he get her cauldron beforehand and leave some yeah, fine yeah. powder in it or something? Yeah. And then just the, the kappas and red caps, like how he... It would have been cool to be like, oh, yeah, I ventured off and found those. Yeah, did he <laughs> yeah. go to Japan before the yeah. year and steal yeah. a Japanese water demon? He may have, but back? even in the main series, we see Remus have access to those creatures as well. Yeah, and Hagrid is gambling with uh, Quirrell, who has a dragon egg, so maybe yeah, it's right. a little bit easier to get right. a hold of than we thought. As far as the cat thing goes, I really don't think his intention was for the, the cat to kill Alex. In fact, I think... Dean Grimm alleviates us of that concern when she tells Alex that the cat was trying to save her. I think his intention was to get her and Larry trapped up there where they would never be seen again, you know, locked in the attic. Just weird, like, if that really is the plan, that no one else would be able to find them, I guess. Because if they go missing, what, you're going to live for probably a week. So you have a lot of time to search the school to find them. Well, so you... I guess maybe you didn't expect them to turn into rats either, but maybe. you're a rat, so you're much smaller, so you probably could maneuver about the castle well, in a different way. But yeah. I yeah. think he did expect them to turn into rats. I think so, too. I just think as time goes on, his plans get more and more desperate, Yeah, yeah. in my that's opinion. Fair. And that's not a very well-thought-out plan, but it's a plan he can make happen with an alibi. They were yeah. sent on detention with him. Yeah. You know? The only like major plot thing that I'm a little confused about, and maybe we'll learn more about it going forward, is it's obviously shown that Claudia has been obliviated so that she does not remember anything, but she also had a closet full of a few magical items. So I would love to have found out, like, had she ever found these and was she re-obliviated when they found out she knew some stuff or has she just never looked in her closet? So... That was one thing I was a little confused by by this book is why was this locket with a person's face moving inside not something that happened to Claudia? Oh, that is interesting. Really, if they're that concerned about her knowing that they obliterated her, they would have taken the item. Why wouldn't they take that stuff? Yeah, that's true. So that was my one concern with the plot. It's not a big plot hole or anything, and we might see more about it later, but. Yeah, that was my only thought. I, I really hope we do see an interaction between Alex and Claudia about that stuff. That's true. We never did get thought, one of those, father. right? Yeah. Like, at Christmas, she's like, I'm going to go home and demand answers, and then everything at Christmas happens, and she doesn't do it. Right. So. Right. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't know. The plot overall of this book is is very strong. Pretty good. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. I mean, I love what you're saying, too. Like, you say it's always backed up when you talk about uh, – sorry, Brady, when you say – Everything's backed up, and Baylor, you talk about when Ben Journey is the one revealed to be the person. It was a twist, but you're right. When you go back, everything's set up for that to make sense. Mm -hmm. So, really well done, I think. And I just wanted to reflect on that and see if there was any discrepancies that anyone had come up with or problems. I will say one thing. If I could have wished for something to be different in this book, one thing I would have wished for is for Alex to have more of a chance to be 
a kid experiencing the magical world for the first time, right? There's so many cool experiences that she could have had that we didn't see because she's already making adult decisions before she even gets to the school. Right. You know, like, for example, the first time she goes to the Goblin Market and has that 99-flavored ice cream, that moment is so cool because it's her first experience with something and we get to live that with her. So it would have been fun to see some of that happen like in a charms class or Oh, I agree. or in hanging out in the common space she's she gets to play exploding snap with some of her classmates or yeah. anything like that. Like even like you're saying in a classroom just the Wingardium Leviosa scene. I mean, absolutely great yes. for showing that new magic potential. I so agree. Yeah. They could have definitely done with that. But maybe because she was already kind of aware that magical stuff was happening rather than Harry, who just kind of lives in the dark about it, maybe she wasn't as surprised as Harry was, obviously. That's a great point. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's it for what I wanted to talk about, so we can move on if you want. We can get into our main discussion then? Indeed. Well, as I said before, our main discussion today, we decided that we would choose between the three of us the top seven characters in this book based on importance or based on impact or based on bias whatever we decided on whatever we voted (laughs) but one thing we decided to do is come to an agreement on these characters so we don't each have our own individual list we have instead our official podcast list um and we we chose seven because it's cast Yes, that. Yeah. We chose seven because it's the most powerfully magical number. Um, we also didn't want to go have like a top 30 list going on. So we went with seven. And for each of these characters, we're going to name them. We're going to discuss why. Uh, I think we're each going to have a defense for these characters to explain why we put them where we did. And then we're going to look back at our casting list and we're going to establish the one that we collectively either all thought was the best casting for a character or the character that at least two out of the three of us thought was the best casting for a character. And then I think, Baylor, you've compiled some numbers on how much it would cost if we were to actually cast these people in real life. And then we'll link you to our Patreon where we try to get that money to cast this movie. Correct, yeah. (laughs) Sure, yeah. So... (laughs) Beginning with number seven, because of course we're going to go in reverse order, our seventh most important character in this book was two characters. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah. was Bran and Poe. We decided to go with Bran and Poe together as a unit because that's how we always see them, and I really pushed for these two. You did. You did, yeah. I really pushed for Bran and Poe because... Bran and Poe are essentially the vehicle through which Alex learns who the person in the locket is, right? Without them, she doesn't have access to the books that she needs and the books that eventually finally reveal that the person in her locket is Abraham Thorne, and that is a huge reveal in the middle of this book. It's a very important moment, and Bran and Poe made it happen. Yeah, I also think they, they're they the first real magical creatures that Alex gets to interact with, so... They're representative of that side of the wizarding world, and it's cool to see the interactions with them. Obviously, we have Dobby, Dobby and Winky in the original series, but 
getting to see both these two and then later on the house elf M, it opens up a little bit more into the world of house elves and how they interact. I would also say that during the most trying time of the year, they were the closest friends to Alex. That's true. I agree. And, and you know, everyone needs a friend, you know, no matter what you're doing. So I think they helped her in that way as well. During the main part of their arc, they were the most important characters to Alex, right? Even Anna wasn't doing as much for Alex as Brandon Poe were during that time. Agreed. So uh, as far as casting Brandon Poe, uh, we took a poll of the three of us, and unanimously we agreed that to play both characters, we would go with Sam Regal. Yeah. Now that I've watched a little bit of Campaign 2 from Critical Role and gotten to hear his goblin voice, I'm more confident that he could just do both of the characters. Yeah. I mean, he's a voice actor, right? That's he's what he's great. hired to do. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, Baylor, how much our first official casting for the movie that we're definitely making, how much is it going to cost us to pull Sam Regal? So just want to uh, do a little caveat out there. These numbers are actually way harder to find than I thought, so they're very ballpark, so don't don't get your panties in a wad over them. But from what I could find, it seems like Sam Regal, for an as official of a production as we would make this, uh, seems to be around $100,000. Doable. Doable, yeah. 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 No problem. It's like uh, a couple years ago they were talking about how you could get a private seat to space in 10 years for $100,000. It's expensive, but almost anyone could save $100,000 if that's their dream. So, And if they have a job. True. <laughs> True. <laughs> so there you go. Sam Regal is going to be Brandon Poe. They're our seventh most important character in this book, our sixth most important character, and you guys are going to have to defend this one, is Larry Albo. Yeah. You weren't a fan of this, correct? I didn't think he was worthy of the top seven. Okay. But I conceded because both of you did. So, yeah. Baylor, yeah. you want to start or me? Well, I just think that he was he, he proved to be one of the top seven because he was kind of the central conflict of the entire book. Like any conflict that Alex got into was most likely because of Larry in some way. And that's kind of what gave Ben journey the opportunity to try to kill Alex. That's what gave Alex the opportunity to save herself a couple times, you know? And then that's also what gave Alex the opportunity to accuse Dean Graham of killing her for yeah. half the book. So, yeah. And on top of that, my thought with this is he saves our main character's life and she saves his and also, every time that she's going to the dean's office is because of him. So, I mean, a lot of the stuff we're reading, a lot of the reasons of her getting in trouble or reasons for where she is, where she is, is because of Larry Albo. Yeah, that's fair. I Look, I don't want to say you guys are wrong because I don't think you are. And he did play a major role in this book for many, many chapters. So, I'm fine with him in our top seven, uh, as far as casting goes, again, unanimously, this time we picked Hale Appleman for the role of Larry Albo. Uh, the reason that I voted for Hale Appleman is when I was looking through the pictures of the people we had chosen. Jack Gleason, who I originally picked, when I looked at him again, I didn't really feel moved. And then I saw Hale Appleman's picture and I went, yeah, that's Larry. Yeah. <laughs> I just saw him and thought that. Yeah. Yeah. He has that uh 
antagonist look to him, you know? Yeah. The and it's funny antagonist. because he's not even really, he's like more of an anti-hero and then a hero in the thing I know him from being the magicians. But I feel like his look is just perfect for it. Honestly, being a first-time reader of this book, I am still not convinced that, that Larry won't be one of the good guys going forward. That's just me. Mm. There's potential there. Uh, so an anti-hero. What's the cost of hiring Hale Appleman? Uh, this one's going to run us a little bit more money, unfortunately, but I think still doable, you know, uh, $550,000. Oh, yeah. Doable yeah. if we pull our wealth. Doable <laughs> if, we, if we get a large loan. We all consolidate. We all get our own large loan and consolidate. We can get it. Maybe if we befriend a banker for years, he can uh, write us a loan with really good interest rates. True. One yeah. thing that we're not even considering when we're discussing the cost of Hale Appleman is the amount of money it's going to cost us to somehow turn him into like a 13-year-old boy. <laughs> Indeed, yes. None of these costs deal with any of the special effects, makeup, any of that yeah, stuff. Yeah. So. so Larry Albo, the sixth most important person in Alexander Quick in the Thorn Circle, coming in at number five is none other than our good friend and Alex's best friend, Anna Chu. Feels uh, harsh putting her this low, but I think it's correct looking at the rest of our list. I yeah. just felt that she needed to be in the top five. I'm fine with her sitting at number five. She is really the word of the calming word for Alex for most of the book. Yeah. Right. Her she's presence the best friend. Her presence alone makes her one of the most important characters. Yeah. She's always yeah. there. I mean, they live in the same room. She's really like the Hermione and the Ron of the series because she's both really intelligent but also really loyal to alex i agree yeah, yeah. i was i was gonna say yeah she's like alex's ron yeah best friend loyal to a fault you know all that stuff yeah. she has a really neat character arc as well true she she goes from very timid and refusing to do any of this stuff with alex to saying fine if you're gonna be stupid and put yourself in danger i want to be there to protect you right to the point where she almost dies she right. gets very close to dying in this book. Yeah, and also, I'm not saying there wasn't a way around it, but the way that Alex did determine what her name was was using a spell that Anna knew. Exactly. Yeah. So I also will say her story, or her past, is interesting, too, because she's has a wizard father and a muggle mother, but the wizard father disallows all mention of muggles. That's in true. It's, it's a weird relationship, so, and I hope we see more of it. I was going to say, I hope that's flushed out in the future. Anna's a cool character, and... Again, unanimously, we've agreed to go with one particular person. I, I will say for this one, <laughs> since our three options were a bunch of unknowns, essentially, I guess we did have Haley, Haley Steinfeld, Steinfeld as an option, but yeah. unanimously, we all went with Melody B. Choi, uh, a person I had never heard of before, before this podcast, and me a person either. I still, if you asked me who she was, I couldn't pick her out on the street. Nope. That's for sure. Not yeah. a chance. Uh, Hopefully but, a good actress. Hopefully. Anna yeah. is a child, and that is kind of the territory you deal with when casting child, child actors. Child actors are tough. Yeah. yeah. Very tough. So we've all agreed on Melody B. Choi, and her cost, uh, hilariously enough, is still more than Sam Regal. So what is that, Baylor? Uh, $145,000. So another benefit of child actors, they're cheaper. Except for Sam Regal, who's just cheaper than them But anyways. he is only just talking, which is... That's he's true. not he's not paid for his undeniably good looks. Yeah. Just his <laughs> just his sexy voice. Right. Right. So there you go. Uh coming in at number five was Anna Chu, our fourth most important character of Alexander Quick in the Thorn Circle, and we're starting to get 
into the most maybe contentious area of the list is none other than Lilith Grimm, at the Dean four. of Charmbridge at Whew. number four. Yeah. Undeniably an important character. Yeah. Without question. Yep. The, the fact that we mo- more of our conversation was driven by her than any other character really helps her fit into this slot nicely. I agree. Yep. I mean, it's it's crazy that she's not in the top three even. But once again, there was a lot of important characters. Like there that was. was. That was one of the things that we were talking about comparing this to Philosopher's Stone. The characters are so damn good in this book. Yeah, and I, I would argue, you know, this is a perfect platform to only grow as a character. Yeah. You know? Like Dumbledore and the Harry Potter series, we didn't really know much of in the first book. Uh, I, th- I feel like Lilith is the same way. Yeah. Like, I'm excited to see her develop and hopefully a good person. Certainly or, we'll see more of her going we forward. We will. She's, <laughs> she's twisted up and in Alex's story anyways just because somebody by the name of Grimm obliviated Alex's mom. Mm-hmm. Right? So Indeed. Lilith is going to grow in importance moving forward. And we uh, – this is our first casting that has a little bit of a disagreement built into it. Two of us. Uh, voted for Jennifer Carpenter, and then Delbert, you voted for Carrie Ann Moss, but majority rules in this instance. Agreed. So I just can't get the literal Matrix version of Carrie Ann Moss out of my head for it, but I'll go with you guys. Our official casting for Lilith Grimm is going to be Jennifer Carpenter, and again, we've said it before, and I guess I'll just say it again. Dean Grimm is described as a handsome woman, and we all three agreed that if we're going to Call Jennifer Carpenter anything. She is a handsome woman. That's true. Indeed, indeed. I can get behind that part of the casting for sure. Unfortunately, due to the Dexter stardom, uh, both the original series and New Blood, she is going to be by far our most expensive casting at $1.3 million. Oof. That's a big one. Back. Yeah, that's a yeah. big one. Yeah. On that- the bright side, I bought a lottery ticket today, which, don't buy lottery tickets. It's a waste, but... Unless if, it hits, if it hits, it hits. Here's our movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but no, we're just counting on all you guys to come up with that money. So, please, oh right, yeah. You know. Never mind. The lottery yeah. winnings are mine. <laughs> yeah. Email I, us. We'll send you our PayPal. One thing I'll say about Dean Grimm that I really appreciate is that she is quote unquote the Dumbledore of this story. She's the leader of the school. She's the the guiding hand by which Alex tries to lead her life, but. She's like the foil to Dumbledore. Where Dumbledore is gentle and wise, she is brutal and forceful. Yeah. And that that difference also helps to reflect the difference between Alex and Harry. She just acts like an angry McGonagall. Like, all the time. She does. Yeah. So, <laughs> that puts her at number four, and arguments can be na- made for her to be higher for sure, but we just couldn't put her ahead of our number three character, who is the late, not really that great, Ben Journey. <laughs> uh, ben Journey, our number three most important character from Alexander Quake in the Thorn Circle. Hard to kick someone who set up like 15 murder plots out of your top three. The the Really, the main villain of the story yeah. by the end of it is Ben Journey, but... His importance isn't linked just to his treachery. It's also linked to the fact that he's the only adult who treated Alex like a person for most of the book. Yeah. Well, that and the fact that he's the de- he was the deliverer of why Alex is 
going to be, you know, the mainstay going forward with right. the Thorn Circle, with the Fidelius Charm, all this stuff. Right. He, he does, delivered all that information. He does, more than any other adult, more than the books that Alex can find, explain why Alex is so desired by every side of the puzzle, basically. Yeah. We asked for answers for most of the book. <laughs> we complained about the lack of answers, and then he really came in and gave them gave us every answer we wanted. Yeah. He gave that Bond villain monologue before passing away, and in this instance, more than any other, I was pretty happy to hear it. <laughs> he just, uh, if I had to pick a favorite character in this book, I would pick Ben Journey, I think. Yeah, I would say so. He was he was the most likable of everybody. I mean, I, I, I compared him to Hagrid several times. Indeed. I so. also just love the mental image of a, of a hippie who... He's also trying to murder a child, but can't because he's he's too soft to do it. Yeah, so right. he just struggles. <laughs> I also think that he's number three because he's the first wizard known to us, or at least to me, that has tried to use the loophole of a of a gun. Oh, true. That's true. Jeez. Unique thinking. Yes. Uh, for Ben Journey again, a small disagreement. Uh, for this casting, two of us, myself and Baylor, picked Dave Allen, and then wow. Delbert. You put Owen Wilson, and I will say, I wanted to pick Owen Wilson, but in my mind, I tried to put him in the villain role, and I just literally could not do it. I will say, the uh, picture of Dave Allen that we have up on our spreadsheet looks pretty good for a hippie that wants to yeah, kill yeah, people. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. That's, that's exactly what I went off of. I'll also say, when you reveal the cost, whatever it may be, it's still a lot less than it would have took to book Owen Wilson. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're, uh, I'm going to say we took the wish version of the character. Sure. But you guys can go <laughs> ahead and live in infamy with sure. your choice. Uh, who it, or how much would it cost for Dave Allen, anyways? Uh, you know, he's a, he's a little, little older, you know, like, uh, seasoned, well seasoned. So, you know, this one's only going to cost us $400,000. Still. Second mortgage. It's not bad. Still no four times as much as Sam Regal. Yeah. Maybe we just hire Sam Regal to play every character. It's not bad, really, for a character who is arguably going to have the second most screen time. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. You know. It's, it's a deal. It's a budget. Yeah. Sure. So, Ben Journey, our number three most important character. Uh, moving to number two, and perhaps the most surprising mention on this list at Agreed. number two is Alexandra Quick. Yeah, didn't make the top spot in her own book. Didn't Crazy. make the top spot in her own book. Uh, obviously, she couldn't possibly be lower than number two. She's the main character. I think there's some people that might argue that she couldn't be lower than number one. You're right. But. She is the main character. Everything happens to her as a result of her. The whole book is told through her eyes, right? Obviously, Alex is one of the most important characters in this book and will be for the whole series. Absolutely. There's no doubt. But I think, you know, once again, the reason she's number two, kind of similar to the Harry Potter uh, series, this first book isn't necessarily a book about them. It's a book about the world building and figuring out why they're in the situation they're in. And in this case, the Thorn Circle obviously was the mainstay of the series, trying to figure out what, what ha that had to deal with, with Alex and with the Confederation as a whole. She doesn't really drive the plot. The plot. She yeah. just responds to it yeah. also. The only thing she drives is trying to find out who her father is, 
But even that is driven because of what Bran and Poe do, because of what Dean Grimm says, because of what Anna teaches her. So, I mean, she's there for the ride, but she doesn't dictate a lot of what's happening. Yep. That being said, number two puts her in a pretty high place. And uh, for the casting, we are back to unanimous agreement here, which is uh, we went with Maisie Williams. Uh, Have to be de-aged, of course. And, you know, if you're trying to cast a manipulative little girl, Maisie Williams has the proven chops to do that. Yeah, and the reason I went with her over my original pick of Genevieve Gaunt is while Genevieve Gaunt was in a movie... She wasn't a lead actress. Like, she was a side character without a line. Maisie Williams is pretty damn proven to be a pretty good actress. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so several, I think if you're going to cast a main title character, you go with someone that's clearly good at what they do. Yes. I would agree with that 100%. Yeah. Also someone that has proven themselves to be loyal to a crumbling series. In yeah. The end. True. <laughs> so... <laughs> that that'll be important based on how our movie goes. Yeah. How much uh how much does it cost to cast Maisie Williams? I can only imagine it's expensive. It is. Yeah, she uh turns out to be our second most expensive. Um and this number probably is the most ballparked because I would guess after Game of Thrones this probably and especially for a movie this probably goes up. Um but what I found was $600,000 for Maisie Williams. Yeah. I would agree that it's probably more than that at this point. Probably. Especially for a movie. But Alexander Quick at number two. And before we do number one, I wanted to toss out some honorable mentions. These are people that we, all three of these characters, well, two of the three characters at least, are people that we thought could have been in that number seven slot um, instead of Brandon Poe. One being Charlie the Raven. You were big on this. I really wanted him to be number seven also. He is... Always there. Yeah, you yeah. wanted him over Albo. I know that for sure. He we is always there. Uh, I I would agree. The only reason I said no was because we were we were trying to do the casting. Thing. Yeah, that's you why know? I said no too. Yeah. Like he's always there. You're right, but he has no speaking lines, and he doesn't need a voice actor. That's just a CGI move. Yeah. Like I I honestly would put him maybe in the top four if we weren't casting these people. Right. Honestly. Right. Because he does save Alex's life very early on, and he probably more than Anna, to be honest, is really Alex's closest yeah. friend. Yeah, he saves saves her life and plays the part of a therapist. Honestly, right. most of the book. He, uh, my biggest reason for pushing him is that I think Charlie is the first time we get an establishing reason for people to think Alex is a dark witch. Right, even more yeah. so than the rumors about who her dad is. As soon as she buys a Raven familiar. Everybody is like, uh oh, she's trouble. Yeah. Right. That is fair. Uh so that's one of our honorable mentions. The second one is Governor General Huxteen. Uh we wanted to throw him in as an honorable mention because behind the scenes, the the bigger plot of this book is driven sort of by the conflict between Governor General Huxteen and Alex's father. Right. We also, you know, at the end of the book, it appears that Alex does not take his side, which I think is important to mention. And I agree. And actually, that is part of the reason I didn't want him in the top seven is because that scene between him and Alex makes him very important going forward. 
yeah. but not necessarily not necessarily this for book. this book. Yeah, I'd also like to like as a sub bullet point, like to add a not so honorable mention underneath Huckstein of Thiel. Sure, not honorable. He was present, but he did very little, if anything, for the plot. Not honorable. Maybe the worst government employee ever. He gets thwarted Honestly. by eleven-year-olds consistently. This so. might be. And this might also be a, a jerk. Yeah. This might be a hot take for our podcast in general, but I think the three of us agree that if he wasn't included in the story, the story would have been fine without him. That's like, true. Entirely fine. Yeah. I mean, it's a real shame that we never casted him. Yep. <laughs> Uh, our last honorable mention, surprisingly enough, is Archie Green. Yep. Archie. And we didn't really have him in mind, but a friend of ours proposed him as an honorable mention because Archie is like the personification of the limitations that the muggle world has for Alex. He's the police officer with rigid rules who won't let her do anything fun. And as soon as she breaks away from that, she really grows as a person. And so we tossed Archie in here because of how he represents the constraints that the muggle world were putting on Alex. And because we wanted to sound smart. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And we wanted to make the discord happy. So true. <laughs> Lots of reasons to consider Archie, but with that being said, at the end of the day, our number one character, most important from this book, probably a controversial statement, is Abraham Thorne. Especially controversial when you just said Huckstein can't be in here because he's not prele- uh, relevant for this book. And while I agree with that, if you think about it as a cause and effect situation, Nothing in this book matters at all without Abraham Thorne. Agreed. Yep. I mean, obviously. I mean, you know, you don't have that half of the reproduction cycle to to make Alex. So true. <laughs> he's very important that way. But no, more seriously, um, once he's figured out to be the man in the locket, almost every conversation between Alex and Anna, Alex and Dean Grimm, Alex and her friends are about Abraham Thorne. Her and trying to figure to the census out. office, her trying yeah. to break into the registrar's office. Yeah. I mean, everything, you're exactly yeah. right. And her trying to figure him. out if he is her father. Yeah. So he, not only is he responsible for her being born, right? If he's not there, there's no reason for anybody to try to kill Alex over and over, which is what gets the reader going in most of this book. Right? There's no reason for people to think Alex is a dark witch in in a child's body, which is a big conflict in this book. Right? There's if without Abraham Thorne, Alex is just another kid at Charmbridge. Yep. I was gonna say that without him, the story doesn't exist. He's the backbone Agreed. of the story. So I think you could interchange it between one and two personally. Sure. But I'm fine with him being at number one. Yeah. That's, I think it's also both title characters if you really think about it. True. I think based on how you interpret Thorne's involvement in this book, you know, whether you compare him to General Huxtein not being relevant or like we're saying, he could be from one to even off the list probably Yeah, for most people. I agree. It's true, and I think as a podcast we just decided that because the implication, the unstated implication is that without his actions, this book has no reason to be written, he has to be the most important character. Yep. Indeed. Yep. Uh, that being said... We did come to a unanimous decision for this one as well. We decided to cast Tony Dalton. The best casting of the year, I'd yep. say. Tony the Dalt Dalton. Tony yeah. the Dalt Dalton. For me, he is the casting that fits the character 
any character in this book the most. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, how much does he cost? Um, this one's kind of controversial, I would say, too. I think because... this one's probably skewed a little bit yeah. because of his recent success with Hawkeye and mm-hmm. sure. Better Call Saul. Right. But what I found was $200,000, yeah. which is pretty good for a main if character. If that's what it is now, everyone yeah. should be hiring him. Yeah. 200000 so might be reasonable anyways because the man doesn't even have to appear that's in the true. movie. That's true. For this book. Uh, for this movie. Uh, that's I did true. it right the he's, whole time. He's got like a three-second cameo where he just moves in the locket. That's he true. Winks and then walks away. And then you would probably, because you're paying him 200k, probably have him voice the letter. I was gonna say, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So there so. you go. That's our top seven list. Uh, as a quick recap, at number seven we had Brandon Poe. At number six, Larry Albo. At number five, Anna Chu. At number four, Lilith Grimm. At number three, Ben Journey. At number two, Alexander Quick. And topping off the list, Abraham Thorne. And our only contention was swapping Larry Albo for Charlie the Raven. I think so. Otherwise, we were basically agreed. Yep. And I will say the total cost for all seven is roughly $3.3 million just for the human beings. No makeup, no special effects, no no de-aging powder. Oh, man. Yeah. So it's not a problem. Yeah. We'll make it work. Elon. Right in. Yeah, we'll find Twitter, it. Twitter purchase fallen through for you, it sounds like. Spend some money here. <laughs> we'll find the other $10 million for the set and everything else yeah. later. All right. We only have one thing left to do before we do Baylor's final predictions of the season, and that is renaming the book. Now, I have to admit this is an idea I stole directly from some other podcasts that I've been listening to, but... I think given the fact that we spent so much time with this book and the fact that obviously there's not a single person on the planet who understands Alex Quick more than us at this point, uh, we deserve the renaming rights. And so with that being said, I think we should each go ahead and toss out a new name for the book. Now, when we talked about renaming the book, I told you guys I wanted you to really channel your deep connection to this story and come up with legit and awesome titles. And so as an example, I'm going to start with mine and then we'll come over to you guys. My new title for this book is Alexandra quick and the 99 flavored ice cream. Wow. Wow. (laughs) That does not give a lot away. I tried really hard to come up with a, (laughs) with a good title. And I was like, let's think of notable moments Let's think of things that happen. Let's think of themes. So I was going to go with Alexandra Quick in the year she tried to behave herself. And then I thought to myself, wait, she didn't really try to behave herself. Let's call it Alexandra Quick in the year she didn't try to behave herself. Then I remembered the 99 flavored ice cream and how cool it is. And, you know, I wanted to put it in the title. That doesn't uh, definitely is a uh, unique title for sure. Typically you put the, the subject of the story in the title, but. I'll be honest. I don't want to be harsh, but if I saw a fan fiction titled Alexandra Quick and the 99 Flavored Ice Cream, I don't think I would read it. What if I told yeah. you that one of those flavors was cheese and another flavor was gravy? Those would both make me want to read it less. <laughs> <laughs> like Alexandra Quick and the 99 Flavored Ice Cream and then in really small text that says, including brown gravy and cheese yeah now if you included from way back in episode two 
Those garlic fries on the North Shore of Oahu is one of the flavors I'm in. I'm all about it. Well, unfortunately, that's not part of it. Bummer. (laughs) Also, I have never had garlic fries on the North Shore of Oahu. Well, that's your fault. I know. Damn it. (laughs) Um, I expect you guys came up with slightly better titles than I did. That's a bold expectation. I sort of went... For myself, I just went with something I thought was really cool from the book. Uh, So, Delbert, if you had to rename this book, what would it be? So I asked you before we uh, sat down and recorded and said, you know, I like the title. And you said, ah, nonsense, make up your own. So I'd like to just point out, I think the title is great. That being said, as the guy who wanted to do the casting section and talk about our fake movie... We'll just make a TV show out of it, too. Great. Alexandra Quick and a thousand and one ways to get yourself to the dean's office. That's pretty good, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I would say it's definitely better than <laughs> definitely better than mine. <laughs> it at least gives a little more content from the actual story. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> kind of spoils most of the book, in fact. Yeah, but you didn't title it Alexandra Quick and 1001 Ways to Get to the Dean's Office so you can be physically and verbally <laughs> abused. <laughs> By an adult in power. True, yeah. true. It's a problem. Yikes. <clears throat> uh, Baylor, please save this segment. <laughs> what's the title <laughs> of your what, What's your new title for the book? So, uh, like we've talked about, I think a lot of Alex's trouble this year, this school year, um, obviously minus the fact she was trying to be murdered by uh, Ben Journey, but um, much of her issues were because she was trying to figure stuff out. She was trying to obtain the knowledge about her father, about the Thorn Circle, about the Wizarding World, whatever. So my title is Alexander Quick and the Insatiable Thirst for Knowledge. Yeah. I can get behind it. We can get behind it. Yeah. Arguably, it's the best title. I mean, unless you want to make a cheap TV show. Or unless you really care about... Ice magical cream. dairy products. <laughs> she really was insatiable, insatiably thirsty for answers in this entire book. That like, is true. I kind of thought one of you might just go with the simple title, Troublesome, but seems like no. Yeah, I did think about just saying Alexand- Alexander Quick is troublesome for a yeah. second. Like, I, that was a consideration, but I don't know. It seemed too easy. I still like the original title more than all of ours. Yeah, it's fitting. That's not <laughs> that's not really the point of this exercise. True. You know? the, the point True. is to say stupid things like we typically do. So hey. Mission I don't know. accomplished. I, she really was insatiably thirsty, and it was like at some points kind of surprising just how determined she was to get answers yeah. when I think a normal 11-year-old in the real world, if an adult said no enough, would just get frustrated and go back to playing with toys or whatever so potentially i don't know those are those are the three titles uh i was gonna say we should try to combine them all together into one big title now but uh i don't know if we can possibly do that alexandra quick and 1001 ways to search for knowledge before being beat up (laughs) by the person who bought you 99 flavored ice cream (laughs) that's not a great title (laughs) alexander quick and the 1001 ways to be insatiably thirsty for the 99 flavor ice cream that's better it's an improvement much better (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, what about the grim tale of Alexander Quick? Ooh. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. hold on. I'm changing mine. That was way better. Yeah. That was there's two M's in Grim, obviously. Yeah, of course. That was extremely good compared to the other ones, yeah. actually. <laughs> maybe, well, maybe preparing for these every once in a while is just not the strategy. Sure. Better off the cusp. Uh, there's potential, yeah. <laughs> there's really not much left. The, I would argue that season number one... Is only gonna last for about ten more minutes. Yeah, and those ten minutes, I think we can fill up with grading Baylor's long-term predictions, which there's a number that we're gonna grade and toss on the grade sheet for better or for worse. Yeah, because I think right now we're sitting at just below a passing just grade. Just below. Uh, and then Baylor will make a prediction for book number two, and we will get out of here. So. Uh, just looking at the list, the the one that was made the most, the prediction that was made the most as a long-term prediction was asking Baylor if Dean Grimm was trying to kill Alex. And for the majority of the book, Baylor, you definitely thought she was. Yeah, un- until like around chapter 25, because that's when Ben Journey tried to kill her. Yeah, you know, like until we find out who Until is. we find out yeah. the answer. So as far as that long-term prediction goes... Uh, I don't think it can be a very good grade. Uh, if I was going to grade this as a long-term prediction, given how many chances you had to catch Ben Journey in the act, I might give this one a muggle. This is a <laughs> Yeah. Not only is she not trying to kill Alex, she actively saves her life, or tries to. Which... To be fair, that information we don't get until the end of the book. But That's true. There was many instances where Ben Journey was sort of adjacent to these murder attempts. And we, Delbert and I have both admitted we didn't suspect him either. But as is the world of education, we're the ones doing the grading. So it doesn't matter if we're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunate. So a muggle for that one? Muggle. All right. Uh, the next one which was a bit of a shorter prediction. It didn't last quite as long, but uh, we'll have better results for Baylor is we asked him was or is Mr. Thiel an agent of the government or maybe I'd I think, like to. Yeah. Ac- actually, this one you sort of just said, right? He said it yeah, normally it, yes. and then we kept up with it. That's so. right. I'm top marks on this because he came up with it. He did. And, you were correct right away as well. You yeah. pegged him as a government agent. So, like, I think the chapter he appeared, he made that prediction. We can offset that muggle, I think, with a. It's not an outstanding. It superior? is a superior. Yes. Yeah. A couple more. Uh, we asked. I don't know how long ago it was, but we did ask if Abraham Thorne was Alex's father. And Baylor, why don't you remind us what your initial thoughts were for this one? Um, if I remember right, I said that yes, he has to be. He has to be right. Imagine the story without him being Alex's father. Using some context clues, that's smart. Sure. It's like uh, eliminating the dumb answer in the first five questions of Millionaire. I kind of feel like for these, at least these first three, it's really either a yes or a no. Either you were right or you weren't. Yeah, and, and he was right. You were right. So I think we can mark another superior here. Agreed. I would have maybe gone one rank lower since we posed the question, 
but at the end of the day, he's still just right. Yeah, it's I don't like, know if you posed the question. I think I said that also. Oh, did you also yeah. say that? That was a long time yeah. ago, well, so I could be mistaken. It's been Even in that time. way, just because the test asks you the question and you get it right doesn't mean you only get 80% of the credit. Yeah, so. that's true. Then uh, there's, will Abraham Thorne make an appearance? And I don't Ooh. know when this one was asked. Was it just recently that it was asked? I know in the last couple of predictions you made, about chapter by chapter, you were saying he would show up. It was, I think, once we figured out that that she was, uh, that Abraham was her father. I think. Yeah, I think it was like chapter twenty three that we first posed this question. Okay, so if that's the case, that's fine. The debate then becomes, what are we counting as an appearance from this guy, right? Yes. Because in the last chapter. You could argue that the letter and his personal raven showing up would possibly be an appearance of Abraham Thorne. So, Delbert, what are you thinking? And then I can see right now Baylor is Googling a defense. So what are, <laughs> what are what's your opinion? Baylor's not going to have to Google much of a defense for me. I think that if we were casting this movie, the letter would be read by Tony Dalton and in, like, Alex's subconscious. Subconscious? Yeah. He's there. You're counting that as an appearance? Absolutely. Baylor, why don't you go ahead and read us the definition of appearance since you've decided (laughs) to Google that. Excellent, excellent. So uh, this is the third definition because there's multiple meanings, obviously. Mm. An act of becoming visible or noticeable, an arrival. A process of coming into existence or use. That one turns me away a little bit. That might not have been the right How does definition. that turn you away? Well, he, he makes himself known with the letter. He doesn't come into existence, though. Just a piece of paper does. I think it's interesting. Or visible or noticeable. Yeah. I think it's interesting because appearing... Just the word appearing makes you think something shows up in front of your face, I think. Uh, In comparison to the rest of the book, this is the most appearing he's done. That's true. At least in in Alex's eyes. I don't know. I'm hard-pressed. See, with the other three, that's why I pointed out that the other three seemed like yes or no. Either yes, you were right, or no, you weren't. This one seems a bit more like a a sliding scale, I think. I'm hard-pressed. I, I don't think it's a superior, but I do think that in the context of the story, it's definitely a passing score. Let's haggle, because I was at superior. And then you went down, or you didn't go I down? I mean, I haven't yet. I'm, I'm teetering because of the definition. I didn't like the definition. I would just say excellent for this. Just one down? Yeah, I mean... He didn't make a physical appearance. That's it's fair. more of like a it's not really metaphorical, but it's like it's a, it's a appearance hidden behind a veil kind of, you know. Yeah, but He's what Baylor doesn't there know yet is that Raven is Thorn. If you want to spoil no, things, you go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you know the I did say that last episode. You did guess that, yeah. Like it's not a physical appearance and that's my only thing. It's yeah. It's still veiled behind something, right? That's Alex fair. still only knows what he looks like when that photo in the locket was taken. Right. But I would argue that he's making himself known. Yeah. Like, 
up until this point, I think Alex probably has been wondering if her father even cares about her or even knows she exists anymore, knows where she lives, anything like that. And this confirms, this confirms essentially all of that, there. right? Because we didn't even know if he was still alive, technically, right? Right. It confirms that he's watching as well. Yeah. And so confirms he exists. Yep. And he's he's in the know too. Like he so, knows what happened in Charm. He does. That's the part of the definition you had a problem with existing. Yeah. It, it, so. it proves his existence <laughs> doesn't exist in front of my eyes. That's all I'm saying. My my official opinion is that this would be an excellent. I can go excellent. That works for me because of that. So I'm not sure what that's going to do to the overall grade. It looks like it's probably going to bump you up to a passing score. Just barely. I don't know that it's going to get you past an average, but no, it won't probably. But a passing score overall, that's not bad. No, can't complain, especially coming in from a uh, Muggleborn house. Indeed, that just means Delbert and I have to play the role of the man next, uh, next book, and be even harsher on our grading than oh. we already were. Yeah, bummer. But maybe one of these times you'll get lucky, and we'll feel like grading on a scale. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, that's kind of the ending of the grading of predictions for season one. And really, that means there's only about one thing left to do, and that's for Baylor to make a prediction about book number two. Do you now, want... Sorry, continue. I have a question for you, though. We know that book number two is called Alexandra Quick and the Lands Below. We know that Alex, that the first book ended with Alex receiving a note from her father, Abraham Thorne, we know that the Thorn Circle exists and that potentially there's people out there who are interested in the demise of Alexandra Quick. Uh, and we know that because of the structure of a book like this and a series like this, there certainly will be a return to wizarding school for Alex. And so with that in mind, Baylor, give us your best shot. And this feels like an unfair task like the prediction segment has felt the whole season given that you haven't read anything and there's not much context, but you definitely have more context now than if we had asked you to predict what was going to happen in the first book. And before he does all this, I have one question. What if he predicts part of the future that doesn't happen in book two? How are we going to grade that later on? We can deal with that in the last episode of season okay. two. <laughs> <laughs> that works. All right, so hopefully... Alex will return to Charmbridge for year two. I'm guessing she will. Um, during the first part of the year, the two serpents that have been rearing their heads at each other behind the scenes for the 12 years that Alex has been alive will come to bear their teeth in a more public way. These two servant serpents being the Governor General and the Thorn Circle. Then, Alex will have to travel to the lands below, previously stated as Death Valley in California, to confront her dad. Upon pledging her allegiance to him, they must figure out a way to bring down Governor General Huckstein and prove Thorne's innocence. All right. So you Or acquit him of crimes. So you've continued to play off of this, your idea that Thorne isn't the bad guy that the Governor General wants you to think he is. Indeed. I'm jumping in head first here. And I know we asked this and we joke about Death Valley, but what was your actual guess for what the lands below were in our last episode? It, it was Death Valley. Oh, that yes. was your legitimate guess. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> awesome. I thought that was a joke that I threw in there. I want to throw out there that while I'm not going to tell you which parts, there are some parts of this that are notable for sure. Agreed. There are some nice. parts 
there are some parts that will play some bearing going forward, which is, uh, I think, as good as you could hope for for a prediction about a book you've never read. I'm assuming it'll be She Returns to Charmbridge for the second year. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess we'll see. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. Uh, Uh, Just want to say I inputted those grades real quick. Only brought me up like two-tenths of a percent, so Mm. I'm still a... Uh, whatever, sixty nine percent. So, ooh, ouch, yikes. So, yeah, well, big bummer. Remedial, ouch. Remedial classes to start next year. That's I guess so. Unfortunate. Yep. So, I'll see you guys about episode twelve next next week. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the end of uh, the end of the season, kind of. Yeah, it's been fun. That's crazy, right? Finally. I can't believe there's twenty nine chapters and we've done them all. 29 chapters, we did them all. Uh, as I think I've spoke to this before, but it seems like when anybody in our friend group starts a new multimedia project, we sort of have a tendency to just say, hey, this sounds like a really good idea, and then not do it. So the fact that we're 20, what episode is this? 27? 28. 28 wow. episodes in. If you include our trailer and movie reaction it's like what 31 32 podcasts we've done now indeed the fact that we're that this far in and continuing on without plans of stopping that's just pretty cool yeah so i would say we owe ourselves a round of applause but that's uh pretty cringe bro we uh i guess we wanted to just say thanks to to the people that have been listening, especially to Sam Gabriel for helping out to uh, the the recording studio here on campus where we record, as well as uh, frankly in variety, yeah, and uh, each other as well. I think is worth thanking. This has been not only surprising that we got this far, but also very surprising how consistently we've been in the recording room making sure that we're producing this podcast so um i don't really have a lot to say do you guys have any final thoughts for the season Uh, i just wanted to say that it's been a long time since i've felt this way after reading a book um obviously it's a fan fiction and none of it's canon but it feels reminiscent of the first harry potter book like the beginning of a new world and i'm really looking forward to diving into that and really being immersed in it because that's what I did when I first read Harry Potter. In fact, that's what I do when I still read Harry Potter. So I'm definitely excited for that. And, uh, yeah, just, you know, with all books that are influential, you know, they change you in good ways. So I just, thanks to everybody involved. Yeah. I mean, like you said, thanks to Sam, thanks to Inverarty, thanks to the people listening, rating, sending emails, super fans, whoever. I'm really excited to get further in. Brady, I know we've I've spoke about this probably 20 times, but you and me really enjoy the cultures of stuff. And hearing Baylor talk about how he's ready to dive into this world and knowing that's what we're going to get out of the next four books. We're going to explore different areas, different places. Four currently. There's a fifth on the way. I know. And then a sixth later on, hopefully. But, uh, um, I mean, it's going to be fun. <laughs> Especially is. because we're going to be picking up our pace. It it is, yeah. It is going to be fun going forward. I will, off the back of that, offer one reminder, one final reminder that we're going to take next week off. There will not be an episode posted next week, and then the following week will be a discussion about 
the fan movie that you can find on YouTube called Sisters of the House Black. The week after that will be a ridiculous episode where we write our own fan fictions and read them to each other and then be very embarrassed. <laughs> and then we'll take another week off. Um, and then after that second week off, we'll come back with the first episode of season two where we're going to dive right into book two of Alex Quick, Alex Quick and the Lands Below. Um, and so it should be uh, pretty exciting going forward. Um, one final time, I want to just remind everybody, you can follow us on social media at the underscore RM podcast on Twitter and Instagram. You can send us emails at remedialmagicpodcast at gmail.com. And if you would toss us a review, that would be uh, really fantastic. We're hoping, I mean, our podcast somehow is growing in numbers and total listens. Uh, and we're hoping to continue that into season two. And if you give us a review, that really boosts our numbers. And so um, with that being said, I think we can sign off for the season. As always, I've been Brady and I've been Baylor. I've been Delbert. <laughs> We've been the Remedial Magic Podcast. We'll be back in a couple weeks with some special episodes and uh, just wanted to say once again, thanks for listening throughout this entire season. It's been real fun so far. Good night. Good night. We'll see you in season two.